to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Joy and talking about respite fostering. Hi Joy. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell me a bit about how you got into fostering? Yes, I was uh, working with families, some of whom were threatened with their children being removed. And I often felt that if we could just give them a bit longer and support them for a longer period of time, they the children could probably stay with their birth families. But uh, we were expected to turn things around in a very short time and children were being removed. And so that was one of the things that got me thinking about fostering. I had thought of it a bit earlier when my daughter, my own birth daughter was in her mid teens, but she was going through a tough time with exams and stuff. So I kind of put it off. So I was coming up towards my late 50s, early 60s and thinking, oh, is it going to be too late? Maybe I shouldn't do this. <laughs> but I decided that actually what I would really like to do would be to be based at home. I still needed an income. I'd like to be based at home. And I was a bit fed up with the the way that our work kept being recommissioned with different parameters and less and less time to invest in the families and um so i thought right i shall go for fostering now my daughter's away at university and um that's how i got into it wow and how long ago was that so that was about 10 years ago yeah maybe nine nine ten years ago and I just, um, I just felt like I didn't want to foster like permanently. I wanted to do it as, I suppose, as a job. But I have a huge commitment to children, and I wanted to see what I could offer. Really, that's fantastic. So that was sort of ten years ago. Were you welcomed into the process? Absolutely. Um, so in my very late 50s, I had previously approached the local authority, but our local authority at the time was in quite, in their fostering department was in quite a lot of disarray. And um, I hadn't had a response, you know, I'd had to follow up, I hadn't heard much. So I decided to approach a charity instead. I didn't want to work for the private sector. So I approached Bernardo's and uh, they were very welcoming to me both in terms of my age and as a lesbian who uh, you know I was although I was in a relationship I wasn't living with anybody so I was effectively a single carer with a lot of support yeah they were fantastic that's really good because things have changed so much in adoption and fostering over the last decade that it's really good to know that you had an experience at that stage. So how was that that early training and that assessment process for you? Well, I found the assessment process hard because when you've got 60 years of life to record <laughs> and every moment has to be accounted for in case they think you were in prison when actually you were hitchhiking around Europe. Um, <laughs> 
that sort of thing kind of was quite difficult to cover in the level of detail, but I was well supported and um, uh, we got really good training, I, I felt at the time. Yeah. And you said you were in a relationship but not living together. How much did they assess your partner at the time and how many questions were you asked about that? They asked a lot of questions about our relationship and they met with her. But they didn't, they, uh, I'm trying to remember, they didn't do a detailed assessment because she wasn't living here and she wasn't going to be caring for the child apart from you know what you'd call family babysitting I suppose that kind of thing yes yes I understand so you were approved as a short-term foster carer can you tell us about those early placements and how they went so I um I had to wait a while to be matched and I think Bernardo's are very well they were then I don't know now but they were very careful in the matching so that was quite frustrating for a couple of months thinking, here I am, I'm, I'm approved, I'm ready and nothing's happening. <laughs> um, you know, so I, and I think uh, talking to a doctors that that can take a long time. And for some foster carers, you know, you, you also have to wait quite a bit before you get a, the right placement. With others, it happens very quickly. Once they found Millie, it did happen very quickly. So I was I was lucky enough to be able to continue working uh, in my job with the understanding that I would be leaving at very short notice or I was likely to leave at very short notice. And uh, I think uh, I was sort of contacted on the Monday or Tuesday to ask whether I was interested in this child who was younger than I had asked for I had oh thinking I'd have an easy life I'd asked for, <laughs> I'd, asked, I'd asked for a child in primary school and this little one was uh, uh still only three gosh so very little yes but at the time she was with other foster carers and that was breaking down she was in nursery so I thought oh she's in nursery that'll be all right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, often with fostering and adoption, things turn out somewhat differently than you anticipate. Yeah, but just a little bit. That's the advice of the century, that is. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You have to be prepared for things being different than what you think they're going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think that's one of the big skills is being able to roll with it a little bit and not have too fixed an idea of how it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So why, why was the previous placement breaking down? Was that anything to do with things that might be then challenging for you, like behavioural things? Absolutely was, yes. Okay. Yes, the previous foster carers had got absolutely to the end. They'd had, they'd had her for six months, yeah. so from when she turned three. And it was her first placement. Well, it was her first proper placement. I think she'd been taken into care previously for like a couple of weeks at some point. Most children have a complicated early history in those terms and they just could not manage her behavior anymore. It was really interesting because, you know, the, one of the things they couldn't cope with was that her screaming and shouting uh, and swearing at them 
particularly in the supermarket in a public place. Yeah. Uh, so this little three-year-old in the trolley, giving it what for? Yes. Well, I don't know. I, I, you know, a lot of the time it's because of the way we handle things, isn't it? So she'd obviously found a weakness for them. Um, yes. <laughs> and she didn't like spending an hour and a half or two hours in a trolley in a large supermarket. So the way I approached that, because that was one of the examples that I was given, the way I approached that was that we went to the supermarket on foot, pushing a Dolly's buggy to yeah. buy a pint of milk. And that was it. And then we did it again a couple of days later to buy two or three items, which she was choosing. Yes. So... I just changed the whole, I think, I think I managed to change the whole experience of so supermarkets and I, I never had any problem in that respect. That's to say she never, ever swore at me. She never swore in public. She never shouted in public. But she was very resistant. She tested me out. Well, you know, you have to do all the things at the beginning, like dental appointments and doctor's appointments and all those sort of things right near the start, which isn't always the best thing to have to do in your first couple of weeks. <laughs> Children don't particularly like doctors and dentists. And I remember the dentist's waiting room. She, we'd, we'd been into the dentist, but she refused to leave the dentist's waiting room. She decided to sit there and anything not to leave. And I just thought, well, I've got all day actually. I'll just go with this. <laughs> So the, the uh, receptionists were great. They just put up with us being there. They could more or less see what was happening. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I just let it take the half an hour, 40 minutes it took to leave the dentists. <laughs> I've heard some people talk about this kind of feeling of being judged in public and wanting to almost say, I've only been parenting this child or caring for this child for two weeks. Give me a chance, you know? And I just wonder, it sounds like you almost didn't fear that. Uh, well, I suppose in some ways I had no experience of it. I had, I have had judgment since. I'll tell yeah. you about that separately. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought what all that's important here is this child and my relationship. Because if we don't get that right, uh, then you know, we're going nowhere. Yes. Um, and clearly whatever's been happening in public with the previous carers, you know, I think the child sensed their embarrassment or upset. And so, you know, that was a little weapon she could use. Yes. And, you know, the children, children with so little power in their lives, they feel so disempowered that they'll use any weakness they can find to... Um, to undermine you and make you feel that you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah, and that needs to test the relationship, I guess, and test the placement and test Absolutely. permanence. Mm. Yeah, am I going to stick with her? Because clearly, you know, the the, the relationship with the previous foster carers, the the, the, the four, their four weeks' notice had run out. Even things were so bad that I say. I was approached on the Monday or Tuesday. The Wednesday evening, I was taken by my supervising social worker to visit the child in their placement. And 
the local authority social worker, her social worker, brought her on the Thursday, the next day. Wow, that's fast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they they were they were just desperate to to move her, desperate to move her because yeah. they were so worried about uh, the placement and how far it had already broken down. Yes. Um, so how did that placement continue, and what was the outcome? Well, it was short, supposed to be short term. And this is another thing to be prepared for. <laughs> and I'd been told short term would be an absolute maximum of two years. Yeah. So after two years, when two years was completed, I gave a year's notice. I said, you need to find this child a permanent placement yes. by the end of this year. And uh, 10 months, I suppose, later, they had found an, an alternative placement. And she's still she's still with them. I see okay. her every now and again. And um, yeah, how's she doing? Yeah, she's she's doing okay. She's doing okay. It's not it's not easy. Her life's never going to be easy. Mm. Yeah, she's uh, she's doing good. How was it for you having her move on after such a long period of caring for her? Well, I have to say. By that stage, after nearly three years, I was absolutely exhausted. Yes. I I had had some very difficult times with her. Very difficult. Mm. I understood by then what empathy fatigue was. <laughs> so it's the kind of thing you come across in a training course and uh, you just can't imagine how, when you're very well attuned to a child's needs, you're lending them your brain, basically, mm. how they can also invade your brain. And it, it felt like I'd, you know, I spent a period of time in, uh, in about the second year uh, feeling as if I'd been taken over um, in some way. My, you know, and, and, it's, and it's true, of course, you know, if we look at the brain patterns and things, that um, our brains do get slightly distorted by that level of uh, empathy and involvement and attunement with a child. So, um, yeah, I'd had some I'd had some difficult times where I was the one doing the screaming and shouting and she was sitting looking at me thinking, where's all this come from? Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like it was quite an intense placement in loads of ways. How did you how did you get any time out during that period? Well, that's that's also interesting because, as I say, I had asked for a school-aged child. I had anticipated she would be at nursery, but uh, from the day she arrived, social care said she's not going to nursery. She needs to just spend time with you for her attachment. Right. So there I was with a three-year-old coming up to four who would then have been going to school in the in the following September. Yes. With no nursery care, not even like a day a week or something. Yes. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't mow the lawn. I couldn't uh, go and get my hair cut. I could, you know, and, and those things because of the level of supervision and attention that she required, you know, a, a, a three-year-old who will 
look for anything to ensure that they get direct attention. Yes. Wasn't going to uh, be left safely playing whilst I mowed the lawn. <laughs> no. So um, Bernardo's did identify a young person who could come to my house and cover basically babysit for a couple of hours one morning a week okay so that's when the lawn got mowed that's when I got my hair cut that's when I went to the doctor you know so those very basic things and then in the summertime when she'd been with me for when she turned she turned four and she'd been with me for three or four months full time and we'd been in each other's company a lot a lot a yes. lot I persuaded them that because she would be starting school in September, she needed to experience some nursery time in her, in the school that she would be going to. Yes. So they agreed for the last three weeks of the summer term for her to go into the school nursery, just mornings, I think it was. Don't remember yeah. accurately. And then that she could continue there at their summer play scheme a couple of sessions a week over the school summer holidays did things start to feel more manageable at that point oh my goodness yes and no okay <laughs> <laughs> because of course you, you're absolutely desperate for some time alone or some time away from the child which is sounds awful doesn't it because you care about that child so much and you you're so involved with them, but you really, really need those breaks, really yeah. need those breaks. But taking a child, you know, getting them to nursery on time is not always easy. Yes. You know, as soon as any pressure is put on, uh, you know, it's time to get dressed now. <laughs> yes. Then, you know, the resistance started and the backlash and the, don't touch my hair, it hurts. It hurts, it hurts. I'm not touching it. I'm just sat behind you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so we would do it in front of the mirror so that uh, she could see that when I was brushing and when I wasn't. But yeah, those sort of, there are always challenges as well to, to any change like that because of course yes. she's then thinking, well, nursery and school's fun, but why, why can't I stay at home with joy? I'm used to that. Yes. You know? And those changes are difficult for them. Yeah. And also, I think a three hour nursery session, you know, if you put sort of 20 minutes travel on either end of that, you've got about two and a half hours and you get home, you're like, quick, quick, relax, relax right now. Come on, relax, relax. And you go through this stressful two hours of intense relaxation, followed by getting ready to go out again. Yes. And it just, it's the weirdest thing as you dash from place to place. Yeah, I um, remember. And uh, some of that relaxation was actually spent hoovering because for some reason or other, <laughs> some yeah. reason or other she would not allow me to hoover. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I would pass the hoover. I'm not someone who's big on hoovering anyway, but <laughs> I do it now and again with a small child in the house. I would pass the hoover to her and say, well, you do it then. Come on, you do it. No, 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 no. She wanted us to do it together. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to manage a hoover <laughs> with a small child hanging on to it and not letting it move the way you want it to move, but then not agreeing to do it themselves. So, yeah, 
relaxing wasn't really part of it I don't think no no it doesn't sound that way it sounds like you were strategizing the whole time that every single thing you had to think through in a very conscious way rather than just I'll hoover I'll brush her hair I'll get her ready I'll this I'll that it does really sound like there was a real strategic approach to everything yeah you just have to be ahead of the game really you're you're looking out for you're looking out for what the uh, people call them trigger points I'm not keen on that but you're looking out for what it is that she's going to resist and trying to kind of maneuver or even manipulate your way around that so that you can get to wherever you need to be and you're always anticipating what might happen next and with a child like that who expressed herself physically as well as verbally I mean she's very very articulate but at that time she was also lashing out physically yes um and attacking me and and it could be it could be very unexpected I'm sitting on the sofa I'm chatting and suddenly whack a smack around the face and it's like whoa I was paying you attention I wasn't (laughs) I wasn't trying to do anything else you know yes I think people have to be absolutely prepared for the fact and they have to prepare their friends for the fact that they can't be on their mobile phones. You can't be even looking at your texts half the time. Yes. Um, you know, you just have to put that to one side and, and recognise that you're, the need is coming straight from that child. And, you know, it's, it's very, very involving and intense. Were you able to keep up friendships and your relationship during this? Because it does sound, it sounds like really you went from somebody who was working outside the house and those professional relationships and a romantic relationship and then I guess friendships and so on to a very intense caring for a child relationship. I just wonder, was there room for both or did some of those fall away? Well, my friends tended to also to be, an uh, you know, in their 50s and yeah, in their 50s mostly, and were mostly working. So they were they were very, very supportive. And yeah, it was it wasn't I couldn't do the evening stuff. I couldn't do any evening stuff. But weekends we could, you know, Millie enjoyed going to barbecues or spending time at other people's houses. So I was able to maintain my friendships at that level you know, tea in the garden or whatever it was. And um, she enjoyed their attention and their interest in her as well. And largely those sort of uh, outings, she 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 was well behaved. She was very conscious of other people's um, approval and disapproval. Yes. So Millie moved on. And what happened on your fostering journey after that? So when she left, I took some time out. I went away to stay with my sister overseas for six weeks, which was real, really good recovery time. And when I came back, I thought I was going to go straight into respite care, but I actually delayed it a little bit longer. And I, I have to say, I hadn't realised how important it was to have that proper couple of months length of break 
before yeah. I did anything at all. Since then, so the last six years, I think it is, I've I've been doing, I've been offering short breaks to other foster carers and adopters, and I've absolutely loved it. Really? Oh, that's nice. It. Yeah, it's been great. And and the thing is that I've you know I've built up relationships with children that just come once a month for a weekend or uh, for a week in the school holidays or you know just manageable bits of time where we can we can just do what they like doing it's not always fun yeah but, you know I try not to sort of give them so much fun that they don't want to go home because <laughs> <laughs> that's not really but but we do you know go swimming or walk to the local urban farm or go to the woods and sometimes with older children I might take them skating or something like that mm. but lots of physical stuff lots of outdoor stuff and um for them it's such a you know we I think the word respite people use in relation to the adults the carers actually the children really <laughs> get a break from their normal environment and routine yes and some of the children are living with other foster children who aren't their siblings you know and that can be quite stressful for them and quite hard going and you know they can't have the 100% attention yes uh so for them i think what i can give them is 100% attention because it's just me and them for the weekend or the school holiday whatever it is that's really nice how many how many different children do you care for in that way at any one time and what ages are they well it's it's varied uh, over the few years and i have um i mean this year because of lockdown it's been completely different yes it, it's just different so because of my age i'm 68 now i've uh, i've not been able to have children in my home yes it's too risky and i had already reduced the numbers of children and the numbers of visits so that i'd got down to a steady three or four households should we call them families sometimes yeah. i get i get both i've got room for two siblings so sometimes they get both together yes. and they've mostly they've they've not been the younger age they've all been nine and over and and of course over the last three or four years they've they're now 14 year olds and wow um, you know i've got a, a really sound relationship with them in the sort of maybe second and third years of uh doing short breaks care i was in so much demand that practically every weekend was taken up wow. and you know i was really really busy with them and that did also impact on my social life because then it became weekends with children where i didn't want to take them to other people's events because I wanted to give them the one-on-one -on -one opportunity. Yes. But of course I had, you know, I had evenings during the week, so it was different. So yeah, it's been, it, it, you have to be prepared for adapting and changing, I suppose. But also I had to, there came a point where I had to be really clear about what's right for me. Yes. So that was both at the time that I gave notice on Millie 
to say, right, you know, I don't want to be, even though things were going really well with her during those, that last year, if you like, I, I had to be really clear about whether or not when I was 70, I wanted a teenager in my house. Yes. You know, I'd set off saying I didn't and that I was only looking for short term. So, but that, that was a really hard decision. I bet. Because I felt, you know, I felt bad for her, guilty for her. And uh, it's not her fault she had to move on again. And of course, because she was only three, four when she first came, she'd never understood that it was only temporary. Yeah. <laughs> because we'd worked so hard at attachment, you know, to, 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 to be told, actually, you're not staying here forever. And I had never, ever led her to believe that she was. I'd never said, don't worry, you're here forever. But even so, it was very hard for her um, and therefore for me. So, again, with children coming on short breaks, you know, if you're trying to build a relationship where they'll share stuff with you and where you can talk about difficult things for them, then, you know, you don't then want to just be not there. So I had to be quite insistent that I didn't want any new children and that I would reduce my workload by what I called natural wastage. <laughs> so when when children's placements broke down or they moved on for another reason or the that kind of respite wasn't required anymore, then I um then I, I said, no, I don't want another new child. I can understand that. And that seems like quite a nice way of doing it. So if somebody was thinking about doing short-term fostering or respite fostering, what advice would you have for them? That it's the most brilliant thing to do. It's fantastic that they need to be really clear with their agency that the child needs good introductions. I don't, I don't take a child without going to visit them at home and seeing their home and their bedroom and them telling me about their routines and what they like to do so that I can get a good picture. And then they come to my house on a, a couple of hours visit so that they can have a sniff around. And I mean that literally, smells <laughs> are different in different houses. Yeah, that's true. And, and we'll discuss, I'll discuss with their carers whether or not they're anxious around food and therefore whether or not they actually stay for tea with me or not the first visit, those sorts of things. And yeah, so really careful introductions, I think, because even though you're just a short breaks carer and they won't be spending that much time with you, people are very careful about who they leave their children with and who they expect their children to get on with and how you know, how how you introduce a child to another family. So I think that's really important for these children who have moved around so much and who who when they come on a on a short break, you know, they can feel very insecure about whether or not this is the start of a another change in their life, whether it means that their permanent carers don't care about them anymore because they're off having a nice time, having a weekend away or whatever they've been told. Yes. So it's um, introductions are really important. And I suppose identifying what you think the child enjoys doing. But also, I think with some children, I introduce them to experiences that they don't have in their main carers, with their main carers. 
and I think that's valuable for them. So if they like spending all day on a screen, and they might do that quite a lot in their main placement, I'll try my best to give them a different experience from that. Yes. Um, get them out and about. So would you recommend it? I'd absolutely recommend it. <laughs> I'd absolutely recommend it. It's, I mean, you know, if you're a grandparent already, then uh, if you can fit another child into your life, that's great. If you're not a grandparent already, this is very good substitution. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a surrogate grandparent. I'd like to thank my guest today, Joy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook, search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins back next week with more guests and more too.